It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is where we bring together award-winning community journalists from throughout the East End and do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's news. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We are publishers of the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the websites 27East.com and SagHarborExpress.com. With me is my co-host, managing editor Bill Sutton of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And our panelists today, we have Christine Sampson, who is the deputy managing editor at the East Hampton Star. Hey, Chrissy, how are you? I'm well. How are you, Joe? Thanks for joining us. Uh, we have Michael Mackey, who's the newscaster right here on WLIWFM 88.3. Hey, Michael. Good morning, everybody. And Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of the website Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Good morning. How you doing? So let's let's uh, start where we always start, which is with COVID, because that's what we all talk about all the time. Uh, it's all COVID all the time. Uh, but we do have some reason for conversation now. There, there's uh, reason to think we're going to see some uh, changes coming in the near future uh, with the possible uh, approval of a vaccine for kids. I believe it's five to eleven, right? Is is what's yes. on the table now. Um, it, Denise, we were talking that you had done uh, a little bit of uh, research into some numbers and noticed that, uh, well, what did you notice about the numbers for kids, uh, especially in local schools? So, uh, yeah, this is called How I Spent My Sunday. Um, this week. <laughs> so uh, the New York State um, Department of Health publishes uh, this school rep- COVID report card, school COVID report card, and um, it was a uh, oddly enough, taken down for upgrading just as school started <laughs> last month. Um, and it came back online, I think, uh, Friday, September 23rd, whatever that was. And um, so I, like, I had been really wanting to like look at what the numbers were. Um, school districts didn't have to start reporting their known cases to the Department of Health until September 13th. But um the New York State Department of Health separately reports all test results for people aged five to 17, and they report it by school district territory. Okay, so like the these people five to 17 that have a COVID test that live within, say, the Riverhead Central School District, whether or not they go to Riverhead schools, they could be homeschooled, they could be going to Catholic or private school, um, they are reported by the state in this school report card. So I looked at, of course, the Riverhead numbers and noticed that the positive test positivity rate was a little higher than the county rate in general, the general population positivity rate, which incidentally has been kind of like either stabilized and something like or going down a little, but it's still considered high and high risk by the how, how much? How much higher, Denise? Um, well, it depends on the school district. I mean, it was really uh, wildly, uh, you know, different from one place to another. Um, the um, let me just open this up. There were like the highest rate, positivity rate was in I think Islip, um, and you know, Riverhead. It was six point seven percent out of seven hundred and sixty-seven tests reported. Um, 51 of them were positive, but overall, um, there were, um, 39,000 something tests given to, uh, children ages five to 17 and, um, over 2,800, 2,818 tested positive. So overall it's a 7.2% positivity rate for the, basically the month of September. And the County was, 4.3% that month. So that's a 67% difference. So that's pretty significant. So then I started looking at like every single school district and I made a spreadsheet and I posted that online. Um, so you can look, you know, drill down yourself, but um, the majority of the 69 school districts in Suffolk County had test positivity rates. And again, these are people who live within the school district, not necessarily going to those schools. Um, that were significantly higher than than you know the the general countywide rate. Um, Islip School District was the highest in the county, except for the little New Suffolk School District. If you set that aside, because there's only 20 kids, so uh, you know. But mm. um, Islip had a 14.9 percent test positivity rate. Um, 
other school districts like William Floyd, um, children living in that district with 13.2%. Now, of course, you know, 205,000, I think, um, students in, uh, students, people under the age of 12 who are ineligible right now for a vaccine um, mm-hmm. live in Suffolk County. So there's a couple hundred thousand people who can't even get vaccinated. And as we know, the rate of vaccination among people 12 to 17 is not that high. Like they don't, mm-hmm. New York state doesn't publish that number separately. And I haven't been able to squeeze it out of anybody, but um, the CDC says it's a lot lower than, um, you know, adults. Only Let me ask you this. Says 55% of New York students under 12 to 17 are vaccinated. Do you, do you think these higher numbers in, in kids in school may be the result of more testing of kids in school? Is that is that part of what may be driving that number? I don't know. I mean, it, it, that's certainly a possibility, Joe, because, you know, we know that uh, among you know everyone, there's people who are asymptomatic or have only mild symptoms and don't realize that they have COVID-19. I mean, last year before Delta, um, they were saying that, you know, a couple of different studies that were published said that um, the, the actual infection rate was probably five times higher, three to five times higher, a second study said, that, um, you know, than what's reported as a known, you know, as a confirmed case, because mm-hmm. there are that many more people. So the more you test, the more, uh, you know, positives you're going to find in general. So that's certainly a possibility. Well, I wonder if it's a matter of who's getting tested, um, you know, as as well, if people are, um, you know, I, I mean, I had a friend who who was, you know, not feeling well a couple of weeks ago and was pretty sure it wasn't COVID, so didn't get tested. But I'm thinking a year ago, you know, a little sniffles and, and you go get tested. And, you know, th- so um, we, we wrote a story this week that they're opening a new testing um, site in, in Wayne Scott, Michael Wright. Wrote, wrote the story and um, supervisor uh, over there, Peter Van Skoyak, um, had had noted that in East Hampton, they have a couple of different testing sites and their positivity rate was so much higher than the county average um, is, as well. Um, for the week ending September 26, he noted, and he, you know, he keeps his own records, positivity rate um, at the Panago Road site was 9% down from 12% the week prior. And in Montauk, the positivity rate was down to 11% from 14% the week prior, which is, you know, so much more than, than the county's 4% average. And he attributed a lot of that to, um, you know, people being in, in East Hampton from, you know, from points west or, or whatever that, um, you know, that they're, that as far as the county average, the county goes by by zip code. So if you were from New York City and you got tested in in, in East Hampton and tested positive, that would go to the New York City average and not and not the, the local average, which I, I think is a, a little alarming that those numbers seem so high out there. But I just wonder who's who's getting tested. If there's a high uh, vaccine you know rate in in East Hampton and you know on on, on the East End, we we know there is. It's people who are feeling real symptoms that are going to get tested. So you may, in that case, just see a higher positivity rate. But I'm I'm not sure. I mean, that just that those numbers when I when I read the story just kind of alarmed me a little bit. And Chrissy, you cover the schools in East Hampton. Is this a conversation that's going on out there? Uh, are, are there concerns? I, it seems like things have been going fairly well in the schools, at least on the South Fork so far this year. I agree with that. I think that it is less of an issue, but of course, um, you know, the definitions of, so you're, they're quarantining fewer kids, right? Um, because the definition of what requires quarantining has changed since last year. Right. Um, and also, you know, kids are maybe three to four feet apart instead of six feet apart. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes there are six feet apart in our schools, but like, you know, you still have situations like in East Hampton Middle School where they converted the library to a cafeteria um, because they needed more space for students to eat spread out there. Um, and then, so the 
the definition of quarantine has changed. So like schools are, you know, basically fewer cases than last year, I think as well. But um, I don't know if it has to do with the testing requirement. And I also wonder if the COVID rates are being affected by like um, the breakthrough cases. So like for a while, am I correct in thinking that the CDC was saying like, if you have a breakthrough case or if you had the vaccine, you don't need to get tested for a breakthrough case. Is that old news or something recent? Can anybody confirm? I think a lot of people avoided um, getting tested if if they had been vaccinated because I think they figured it probably, as Bill said, a lot of people just shrugged off illnesses and thought uh, it probably wasn't COVID. But in many cases, it might have been a breakthrough case. You never know. But but I'm wondering, Chrissy, if you think when if and when and I assume it's just a matter of time everybody's been saying it's a matter of time for the FDA to approve vaccines for five to 11 kids. Do you think there's going to be a rush? Do you think do you think most kids, uh, most parents in our region are comfortable with the vaccine enough that they'll be getting the vaccine? Or do you think we're going to see vaccination rates at kind of the same rate that we saw in the adult population? You know, it's hard to tell, Joe. Um, I think that in East Hampton, particularly, there will be probably a larger a higher rate of kids in that age group getting vaccinated. The school district is really encouraging vaccinations among students. Um, they've even, East Hampton High School has even held its own vaccination clinic recently where 47, um, 47 children got, uh, got the shot out of 50 possible doses. So, you know, you had a tiny bit of room for extra shots, but, um, you know, those, those appointments were scooped up so I, I can't say for sure in like a district like Sag Harbor, for instance, where, you know, even before COVID hit, when the district, when the state made mandatory, like the MMR vaccine, um, like there were some people really speaking out against the, that was like 2019, summer of 2019, I think. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of those kids faced the families faced the choice, homeschool your student or get those vaccines. And I think we saw some pushback even then that may have impacted the mindset this time around. It's also it's a small number, though, right? I mean, I, mm -hmm. we're not talking about a lot of parents um, who have been um, vaccine resistant uh, for the MMR vaccine or or the or the uh, COVID vaccine. I, I think the majority of parents out there seem to be comfortable with the idea of kids getting getting the vaccine. I, um, I, think, I think Chrissy's right though. It's gonna depend on where you are. I mean, we cover some districts where parents have been, um, you know, really up in arms about the, the mask mandate. And, and I'm thinking those parents aren't going to be eager to have their kids vaccinated. And it's not going to be the kid's choice at that age. It's going to be the parent's choice. And, and I think that, that that you know that whole political football um, you know over masks is might could possibly transfer to 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 vaccines. Although anecdotally, I will say that the parents that I've spoken to um, are very eager to get their younger kids vaccinated and feel that sense of of security and will feel a sense of relief. I think that um, you know that the you know the entire family other than the young kids have been vaccinated. So, so where you're dealing with with households where the vaccine is, um, you know, is, has been welcomed and, and approved, I think certainly those kids are going to be vaccinated. But, you know, let's not forget there's this whole uh, counter argument to that as well. Michael, as we head into the fall, um, we're seeing some encouraging signs. I, I just read an article uh, yesterday that the Mu variant that had flared up a couple of weeks ago seems to have disappeared. It, uh, there haven't, hasn't been a reported case in two weeks. Um, it seems like the Delta variant might not be, uh, it may have peaked and may not be uh, going up and up and up like it was. Are, are you at all optimistic about the fall? Well, this is what I'm seeing out there. It's my understanding that we should still be wearing masks indoors, especially if you're indoors for a sustained period of time. For example, if you're going to uh, King Cullen and you're shopping there for 20 or 30 minutes, 
you're supposed to, per the science, be wearing a mask. If you're at mass in a local church at 8 a.m. on Sunday morning, why are two-thirds of the people there not wearing a mask? Why is the priest not wearing a mask? Am I wrong? The science is still uh, stressing that it's correct, in everybody's correct. best interest to wear a mask if you're indoors, especially if you're in an enclosed area for a sustained period of time. And I just don't see that happening around town. You know, what's interesting is I, I'm I'm vaccinated and I still wear a mask in all those places. I When I go, even if I go to Starbucks and I'm in there for 10 seconds to pick up my order, uh, I wear a mask when I go in. But I noticed that the messaging now at a lot of places is if you're not vaccinated, you should wear a mask while you're here. And so for people like me who are vaccinated, you have to make the decision about whether you feel like you're walking around the grocery store sending a signal that I'm not vaccinated or you choose to be to be more careful, which is I, I don't feel like that's a big debate. I'm going to be more careful. I don't really care how it looks. But I, I, I do notice, as you did, that there are fewer and fewer people um, wearing masks. Bill, you and I were talking about this, that I, you see it a lot less in grocery stores and things than you did I, for a while. I, I went to Walmart yesterday. I took a quick trip and it was about 50-50. And, and I think that, um, you know, when a, a, so so initially when they dropped the mask mandate in, in the spring, nobody was wearing masks and then cases started to increase and we saw the Delta, um, you know, come on strong and more and more people. I noticed anecdotally in the stores were were wearing masks and it was up about 75, 80, 85 percent, maybe. And now I think that's dropping back down. Um, I don't know answers. I certainly I'm wearing my masks, you know, whenever I'm going in anywhere. And then I feel bad because I read articles that say that my cloth mask is almost almost worthless and I need to be (laughs) wearing something more. So I I ordered some KN95 masks. I guess I'm going to start wearing those when I go out. But. They're a lot less stylish, I'll say that. Although you can cover those with a with a cloth mask. You can, too, put, so. you, you can put your designer mask over your medical mask. Yeah, it's generally what I try to do. But uh, Joe has quite the reputation. Business style. people into tiptoeing around the situation. Do they have the doors closed? Do they open their doors? Do they? Uh, what type of um, uh, mandates do they uh, push upon their their customers? You had a terrific story about a couple of restaurants who are insisting on vaccination uh, proof before mm-hmm. they will be served. And we're entering a period of time where we'll be less and less able to be open, where it'll be cold. Yeah. You'll, you'll be inside stores that where the doors are shut and the same air is circulating over and over and over again. Yeah, so we, I don't we, know what's going to happen. We've written about that topic a couple of times in the last couple of weeks uh, with restaurants. And uh, Mike Wright from from our papers did a did a great story this week uh, that the restaurateurs said that they left millions of dollars on the table uh, this summer because they had trouble finding staff. Uh, Chrissy, that that's something we've that's not really news. We knew that. Right. We, we knew that the restaurants, so many restaurants on the South Fork this summer in the busiest time of year were closing early and and they were cutting hours, even though they had no trouble filling tables. This was a busy, busy summer for a lot of those places, but they ended up not being able to, to stay open in some cases, right? I know I can re- mention a couple of specific examples. It's like the Springs General Store has changed its hours dramatically. Like now Mondays, they're only open to like noon or something like that. And, you know, the corner bar changed at some of its hours and, um, Panera Bread on, in Bridgehampton is yeah, open to, to drastically reduce their hours. Yeah. And this is uh, also a, it's a housing issue, too, because uh, the restaurants say that it, it wasn't all just COVID related stuff. They just had trouble. A lot of people may have just moved on from working restaurant jobs uh, because of the pandemic. And uh, the people who do want to work, it's difficult to find housing for them. So it all kind of comes back to housing, as so many things do. Everything and does. Jill, beyond difficult, isn't it? Doctors yeah. can barely afford affordable housing. Right. How yeah, can a, a waitress or, a, or a, anybody working in almost any field? That's why the traffic is, the trade parade traffic is more intense and heavier than ever before. Anybody that, that can afford to live here doesn't need a job. 
And the people David, that don't want to work here can't live here. David Hirsch, who owns Cowfish and a couple of other restaurants uh, over this way in, in Hampton Bays and West Hampton, I was trying to bring a manager in and couldn't even find a place to live that was affordable. Chrissy, I'm sorry, you were going to say something? Yeah, I was going to say, Joe, you also brought up the fact that like the summer is when those restaurants need to make a ton of money in order to sustain themselves for the rest of the year. That's their bread and butter. Mm-hmm. So what is that? You know, how does that bode for you know, restaurants in the fall and winter. Will we and see our, more? What, what I think one of the one of the people that, that Mike talked to, Mike Wright talked to for the story had suggested that that perhaps restaurants be given a pass on some zoning regulations if they wanted to build staff housing near near their restaurants, behind their restaurants or, or whatever. And I think that that may be something that uh, that we need to look at. Um, you know, and, and, not, and not just restaurants. I know schools are looking at that too, and and other, you know, uh, and other. We've talked about it before. I mean, years and, and years and years ago in Sag Harbor, when the watch case, you know, factory came in, they built company housing, and and so maybe there's a way to return to that somehow. That um, where the regulations aren't as onerous as they are now. That was that was Mr. Hirsch who who was said that, right? that 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 it was a matter of housing, and and also it's worth pointing out his organization has upped their pay and upped their benefits for folks that work for for their restaurants. That may be one of the things that ends up happening here is that an industry that I think has been sort of notoriously uh, low paying jobs, uh, they're going to probably be forced to elevate this a little bit. You know, this is an opportunity to to get in a plug uh, that we do. We are going to have an express sessions event, our first one of the fall. Uh, coming up this Thursday, the 14th at 10 a.m. via Zoom. And the conversation is going to be about hiring challenges uh, in the post-pandemic era, but but just also in general, I think it just exacerbated a lot of the existing problems, but we're we're going to have those conversations on Thursday. So this is Behind the Headlines on WLIW-FM. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. Bill Sutton, managing editor of the Express News Group, is my co-host. Our panelists today, Christine Sampson from the East Hampton Star, Michael Mackey from right here at WLIW-FM, and uh, Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local. And Denise, uh, Riverhead went through, we had a conversation about it uh, in the last week or two on the show. They they went through with their puppy mill law, but it's really a, a law that has a much bigger effect on a wider range of animals and transactions, right? Um. Theoretically, uh, it, it, it bans the sale in pet stores in Riverhead of commercially bred um, dogs, cats, and rabbits. Um, I think the main target was uh, the puppy mills, but there are certainly milled, as some people call them, uh, cats and, and rabbits too, apparently, which is something I had not been aware of. But um, You know, it was pretty uh, controversial. We have um, two pet dealers, you know, stores in in the township that sell commercially bred dogs. Um, And um, they both came out, obviously, against this. Uh, They will be allowed to sell dogs that they uh, source from uh, shelters and um, humane societies. But... Uh, that's it. And, so, um, so it's a local law that that essentially is meant to push people away from boutique pets and and towards shelter animals. Is that fair to say? I, I think that's fair to say. People can still acquire dogs from uh, private breeders, but they have to do it on their own and not through a store, because the theory, I guess, is that. Uh, if you acquire a purebred animal from a private breeder on your own, you're not dealing with the puppy mills in, you know, Pennsylvania or Missouri or Alabama or wherever. So, for people who might not be familiar, what can you define the term puppy mill? What are we talking about? Um, well, we're talking about a commercial breeding facility where, um, according to the Humane Society, um, it, they dogs are kept in circumstances that are described as horrific, um, small cages, um, dogs that are breeder dogs, female dogs are bred a few times a year. And, um, 
they are bred until they can breed no longer. And then they are essentially discarded. Um, if they're not rescued, some, you know, they'll be put down. Um, the puppies are kept in, uh, are often, according to critics, kept in conditions that are unclean. They're often uh, taken from their um, their mother before they should really be weaned uh, because it's all about making money. And, you know, the quicker they move them through and the quicker they, you know, sell, they can sell them, they're often sold to brokers. And then the brokers deal with the retail outlets. Um, the, um, the people who have these stores in Riverhead say that they do not deal with brokers, that they deal only with um, reputable breeders who have no uh, viola recent violations because commercial breeders are regulated by the USDA. Um, they're also uh, the puppy store, the puppy stores, the pet stores are regulated by um, the state. And, uh, you know, according to them, they're not everything is is fine. They objected strongly to this and they deny strongly that they are dealing with people that abuse animals in any way. Um, they um, there's an organization. Um, I can only remember the acronym, and I guess that's intentional, but it's P-U-P-P-I, Puppy, um, that is an organization of pet stores, um, and um, they vehemently opposed this and other regulations that have come down the pipe, whether at the county or the state level, and um, they were at the public hearing and uh, were sending memorandums of uh, opposition to the town board. And they told us, their representative told us that, you know, you can count on a lawsuit that the Riverhead, this, they're going to challenge this law. So um, we can expect, you know, keep an eye out for that and can expect to see that, they said. So, uh, so we'll see what happens. So what, what's the real world impact of this new law? You said there are two outlets in Riverhead Town that would be affected. Are they essentially put out of business? It doesn't sound like they, they're saying that they may not do business in a way that that runs afoul of this new law well that's that's well there's they, they would not be able to sell the dogs that they sell because they are commercially bred they don't deny that they're just saying that they buy from they acquire from breeders that are not these horrible places and this this law is you know a wrong-headed effort to um target you know something I, else and they're caught in the crossfire but but, you know, essentially, they say that this will put them out of business because sure. that's they make their money selling animals. Um, and then, you know, other people say, well, change your business model. And they point to, you know, Petco and um, other chain pet stores um, and, you know, say you could do business the way they do. I mean, the reality is, though, I think, you know, practically speaking, small businesses have a heck of a hard time uh, competing with chains like that when it comes to selling, um, you know, items like, you know, pet food and pet supplies and things of that nature. I mean, that's just the reality with small businesses competing with big chains, no matter what you're selling, you know, on a retail, uh, a retail level. I mean, sometimes they, they can't, they pay as much for um, an item that, you know, Walmart is selling it for, or Petco might be selling it for. That's just like a reality of, of retail. And, uh, trying to compete. So, you know, saying, oh, change your business model, you can be like Petco. I, you know, I think that's kind of a uh, impractical. Not, not, not when they're, I mean, the, the, the puppies that they're selling in these stores, I mean, can go for hundreds or thousands of dollars if they're mm -hmm. pure, purebred, purebred and, yeah. and have papers and all that. I mean, you're not going to make up for that selling, you know, $20 bags of dog food. It's, right. it's also disingenuous to tell small businesses right now, hey, go be Petco because yeah. Petco right. yeah. exists and you're you're going to have a difficult time yeah. trying to find that that uh, profit margin that works. Um, yeah. I, I don't I, know what everybody's yeah. pet situation is here. I, I think I can speak for Bill that, I, that, that we've always had shelter pets and I'm sort of fascinated by this. Chrissy, we live in a community. I, I know people who have gone out to get um, bred purebred animals and are willing to pay. And I, I have a friend who traveled to Maine uh, in order and spent four figures, I'm fairly sure, to get a cat uh, because the cat was non-allergenic. Um, and this was important to them. 
Uh, and I think part of the argument about all this is there are so many animals that are in shelters uh, that it that it just seems wrong to, to 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 do that. But this is this is a this is an interesting debate, I think, in a community like ours where you have some affluence and, and people are going to be willing to spend the money to get the kind of animals that, that they want to adopt one way or the other. Um, I, I have very limited experience with pets. I, I wish I had one right now to be able to more thoroughly understand this news, um, this news item. So I'm not the best person to, <laughs> to comment on that, except to say that, you know, um, stop me if I'm wrong, but like people joke around saying like, oh, you know, there's plenty of support out here for shelters monetarily, but like, you know, less, less for like people in need, yeah. you know, like you can get a horse rescue or like a dog rescue, but like, you know, people I care less think, about like, I think it's interesting because one of the problems that the shelters have, I, I believe is that, that their outreach to the community could be a little better. And I think it's, you know, if you're, if you're in the market to adopt a pet, uh, you have to really find them. I, re I remember that for a time when there were vacancies in uh, some village uh, downtowns, and I think it was in West Hampton Beach, and I think they may have done it in Southampton Village as well. They, they set up, uh, it was definitely a West Hampton Beach bill that, that there was a pop-up shop where- There, uh, there was, they, they, first, they first came in with vans um, initially on the weekends on busy Saturdays, and they had vans full of adoptable pets. And then they did open a, a, a storefront um, for for a summer with with these adoptable animals. And, it, you know, look, so I mean, everybody who knows me knows I, I have dogs and my dogs have always been uh, shelter animals um, because I think that it's great to to adopt a pet that's already trained and you know, they've a couple of them had some behavior issues that we've worked through and all that, but but they're great pets and they're very loyal and, and all that. But there are a lot of people who believe that a purebred um, animal um, coming from a breeder is is a better dog and more trainable and more this and more that. And, um, you know, I, it's it, it's tough for me because I don't like to see, you know, animals, um, you know, luckily the shelters out, out here are no kill shelters, but you know, to see, to see animals abandoned and, and not, you know, and not have the care that they need. But at the same time, I mean, they're, they're, they're a commodity. And, and I wonder if, if I'm not against the Riverhead, um, you know, new regulation, but I wonder if that effort wouldn't be more better spent um, trying to regulate and control the, the, you know, these breeders um, so that the animals aren't abused at that level so that you have so people have an opportunity to have what they want. If they want a, a purebred, you know, dog, I guess they can go to a private breeder or whatever. But if they want a purebred dog, they can get that. If, if their heart is is with the shelter animals, they they can go do, you know, go do that. I, I don't know. Denise, I, the, the question I have is, I, you know, I think one of the real appeals was uh, the one uh, pet store right along the main road on the North Fork with the big window with the puppies in it. I think that's an attractive way to do business because it really attracts people to come in and look. It's it's one of the things that, so when you talk about this new law in Riverhead may put them out of business, I think it's possible those businesses may just relocate to, to other communities, maybe even on the South Fork. And it may turn out that the South Fork has to look at uh, doing a similar law like this if they want to stop it. Well, there, there was a there was <clears throat> there was a, a pet store in Hampton Bays for years and years, but people would protest it every week and there'd be picketers outside the store, um, mm -hmm. which forced I, I'm not sure if it's the same business as the one in Aquabog now, but um, <clears throat> for, no. it's not not the same. So but, but the, so. The, the one in Hampton Bays was forced to move um, because people just wouldn't tolerate it there. I think, Bill, that you make a very good point that, you know, the real um, subject of these kind of laws is it should really be addressed. And that's the breeders. I think that, you know, the reality is it's out of the control of local or even state authorities right. because they're out of state. And, um, you know, they're in states where other you know, there are other rules in effect. And, um, you know, that's the reality. So, um, you know, I, the, the person who introduced this bill um, is uh, Councilman Ken Rothwell. 
And, um, you know, he said you can still get it. You have to put the effort in, but you can still buy a purebred dog of your choice. And he said that he recently acquired a Dalmatian. Uh, he did his research. He dealt with a private breeder. He went and visited the, you know, the breeder's facility or home and, you know, purchased it independently like that. Um, but there is, you know, a certain amount of effort and you have to have the ability maybe to travel. Um, you know, I, I, I think the owner of the pet store here in Aquabog, uh, when he was speaking at the public hearing, he said, you know, the reality is that a lot of the dogs in shelters are uh, either um, um, pit bulls or pit bull mixed dogs and not everybody wants a, a pit bull, pit bull right. mix, you know, dog. Um, and of course, those dogs have a really undeservedly, I feel, bad reputation. Um, we had one here that was just a love and a sweetheart. And, um, you know, you hear that from a lot of other people who have uh, them as their, you know, four legged companions. But they do have this uh, reputation. And as the owner of the pet store said at the hearing, you know, some people want a cute dog. That got a lot of that got a lot of groans. Hey, and, you know, my dogs yeah. are pretty cute. Uh, they're adorable. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I mean, I don't know what his definition of cute is, but so um, I, you know. I'm I'm flummoxed that that so the 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 councilman who introduced this legislation is someone who went out and got a boutique dog. He, he said, yes, he said, wow. you know, it's still that's, that's possible a, to do that. And that's stunning to me, though. That's a uh, surprise. I would have thought it would have been a shelter, shelter uh, pet advocate all the okay. way. So uh, I love a wrinkle like that. It seems to me Nothing every is ever single simple. time I meet somebody with a dog, they go out of their way to point out to me how they acquired the dog. And invariably, right. it's from a rescue center. I can't remember the last time I met somebody who said, oh, he's bred and he's pure. And it's sort of gone the way of uh, fur yeah. coats. You don't see people you, walking around bragging about their mink anymore. That's not something you want to admit. But, no. but, but yeah, adopting an animal out of a shelter is something most people are eager to point out they've done, as I just did earlier. Yes. Right. Because it makes you look like a good person. It's an easy way to, right. to look like a good person. It's not cool to have a bred dog. <laughs> This is Behind the Headlines on WLIW-FM. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, my co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today, uh, Chrissy Sampson from the East Hampton Star, Michael Mackey from WLIW-FM, and Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local. Denise, let's go back to you. Uh, you had some news this week about fundraising for the uh, Riverhead Town races that are coming up, right? Well, so far, I just reported on the supervisors race. I have to I have to report on the uh, the other races as well. But, you know, the supervisor race is always the one that has the most gets the most attention and also draws the most um, donations, contributions. Um, so I would just, uh, you know, encourage everybody in the media. We do that. I know. So uh, and and people out there to go to the New York State Board of Elections website. It's a really once you uh, play around with it, it's really not that hard to use. They revamped it. It's a database. You can sort the things and really drill down on, uh, you know, what the uh, what the people who are asking for your vote are are doing to uh, fundraise from all sorts of places and all sorts of people um, there. You know, it's kind of we are the incumbent supervisor right now who was elected to her first term in um, 2019, took office last year, um, is on pace to um, out fundraise and outspend um, every other uh, candidate, I think in the history of the town. I only have access wow. to numbers, uh, you know, going back to 2007, um, because that's what's online. And, um, you know, I must have tossed the other printed reports I had from <laughs> before that i don't know i don't have them you know yeah and i don't think it went up and then back down i mean this has been a trend that go, you know i'm sure you've all seen that it just has gone up and i think you know i mean i think it's important in information to to look at and certainly important for us to uh report on but um you know i um i, where, where, I where, had, where's your where's your money coming from denise 
So that's what I was going to say. Like I, so I put, you know, they, you can download the information from the BOE actually in a, in a format that you can import into a spreadsheet. It's not hard. Uh, CSV format. You can open it up in uh, your, your spreadsheet program of choice. And um, well, I mean, lo and behold, um, her, you know, she had 72% of her contributions coming from people and businesses outside of Riverhead, wow. um, which uh, is, I find interesting, I, you know, to say the least. That's very, um, that's very interesting. Well, you know, I mean, and more, more importantly, and I don't have a hard number on this yet, because I, frankly, I was just getting kind of cross-eyed dealing with all these numbers this week, but um they, uh, you know, a, a lot of them, let's just say, were, and I made a, a, little, a partial list in my story, but a lot of them were even from um, develop. Well, a lot of them are from businesses and developers, um, some of whom are not known to us here yet, as uh, you know, but some of whom have uh, pending applications before the town and even before the town board, um, including. I guess that's not surprising, right? Right. No. And, uh, you know, and uh, look, and let's also be fair and say that that this part, this incumbent supervisor is not the first person to be in that position. And I don't know about the proportion of from Riverhead outside of town uh, money, but, you know, certainly people who either do business with the town or have applications before the town. That's been a thing in the past. So she is certainly not alone for that. Uh, but, you know, the, just the, the, the number of. Uh, contributions this year and the dollar value uh is just um you know it it was never like this i mean you know uh the the money that came into local campaigns uh in riverhead has never been um i'm sure like what you guys see on the south fork uh it's been pretty local and it's been you know fairly small amounts i mean it's been going up over time and uh the uh, fundraising king so far was uh, Sean Walter, <laughs> um, but um, you know he he went above fifty. He was like above seventy thousand. Um, I think the highest ever was like seventy eight thousand. I have in here, um, and you know she's already raised um, just about seventy four thousand with you know a couple months to go by the time it all shakes out. So um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, she's. Um, outraised um, her opponent um, more than double. And um, she's outspent her opponent um, three to one so far this year. So, That's, um, I, you know, I want to explore your point too, Chrissy, the, the, we've had this, um, this same phenomenon, this sort of local uh, politics arms race trickle all the way down to <laughs> the village level um on the south fork the southampton the uh sag harbor and the east hampton village mayor's races had a lot of outside money and and just enormous amounts of money that were poured into those races you're you're muted chris i yeah that's that's totally the case joe um you know particularly when we had that three uh three person race for mayor in East Hampton Village last year, um, and you know the the current you know the candidate who won uh, Jerry Larson had so many donations from businesses and second home residents and people not necessarily from here, and he emerged successful. Um, I don't know too much about um, Sag Harbor, but I, I that was also the case in uh, in Southampton Village, where have you seen that? that Instagram account. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it, it just, it's like, it's getting pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. I think one of them built the one Instagram account that was, that was sort of an anonymous uh, Southampton village politics gossip site, I think got shut down. Right. But. Well, we don't know if it got shut down or if they just pulled it down or, or whatever, but yeah, we were keeping an eye on it. It was pretty outrageous. Yeah, I mean, I've seen the fundraising, like even our local candidates who are running for Congress, you know, they're Boy, actually, yeah. did, you, did you know that there are six Democratic Party candidates now for that mm -hmm. CD1 seat? And, you know, Bridget Fleming and Kara Hahn, who are the two, I would say, front runners for that, um, have uh, have raised almost 
you know, an even amount, um, a few thousand dollars difference at this point. Um, and that's probably, you know, that's been the problem with the Democratic Party and that first district seat in the last few races is that they have had such uh, internal battles that that led to primaries and things. And I think it sapped a lot of their resources for the general election. Um, yeah. And I think they're on path to do that again this time. Do they spend, sorry, they, I was just going to say, you, well, you said, it. I mean, they, they spend all their money on, on the primary and when it comes down to uh, to the general election. I mean, you know, there's there's nothing left and they've got to go back and, you know, and do that fundraising again. If they could get together and figure out who the best candidate was maybe a little earlier on. And, you know, look, it's the democratic process. And, you know, if people are interested in the CJ, should be able to primary for it. But you would you would think that they would want to try to pull that together and, you know, and put uh, especially this year where it looks like Lee Zeldin isn't going to run for reelection. Um, we don't know who the Republican candidate might be, but um, you know, you, you would think that they want to would want to be as prepared as possible for you know for the for that race for the big race. They need Michael, a boss you, tweed, knock some heads together. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, Michael. The, this influx of money into the local races, especially at the village level, which I'm I just find myself stopping to every time I say that I still can't believe the kind of money that's flung into village races. This is just not good, right? This is a bad thing. It, it, it has an impact on these races. Uh, and, and it means that, that what used to be neighbors running against neighbors has turned into a political fight. Well, the neighbors are, are more wealthy now than ever before. Mm-hmm. So naturally the amount of money they invest in their perception of quality of life is is going to involve their political donations. That A lot of those people who donated to uh, Mayor Warren's campaign are wealthy people who knew him, liked him, and were turned off by the approach of his opposition. But there, there's, so much, uh, the, there's so much to all this that's really fascinating. First of all, right now, coming up with the Suffolk County legislator election, uh, Bridget Fleming and Kara Hahn really need to make a statement and and win decisively to show that they've got pull. In fact, they're, I'm wondering as we, as we just to they're clarify, both running for the Suffolk County Legislature, right? Yeah. Yes. So they're running for the Suffolk County Legislature, which uh, which uh, their incumbents said presumably they'll be reelected, but they need to win by a lot of points. The 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 amount by which they win will indicate how powerful a. Uh, an influence they have in, on the East End in the, in the first congressional district. Yvette Aguilar, if she were to uh, score a resounding victory, would she be considered the Republican, possible Republican candidate for the first congressional district? Because uh-huh. I think that's, that's where some of the uh, money's coming from. That's her potential ability to, uh, to go beyond the town of Riverhead and take that position. She's uh, got a background that's very appealing to Republicans, and uh, she's managed to uh, skirt her way without alienating the Trumpster Republicans and still uh, remain a Republican. It's interesting it's how those two races are kind of kind of intertwined this year. No question. Yeah. Um, Redistricting is, is also an interesting story. Uh, Joe, in your paper, sure. uh, 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 did a nice piece on that. Yeah, uh, we did. Uh, we wrote will our district, will our first congressional district actually change? Yeah, absolutely. The redistricting process is is underway, and it's looking more and more like it's going to get thrown to the legislature in Albany, uh, which, you know, with Albany being dominated by the Democrats, there's uh, thinking that that may end up uh, changing the borders in a, in, a, in a different way. So we'll keep an eye so on I'd that. Like to, I'd like to go out on a limb here and say that uh, the infusion of big bucks into local elections has a, is a corrupting influence. <laughs> and uh, and uh, this is an opinion piece. It's the bottom and, yeah, line and here. It's, I mean, it's it's like I mean, you know, why are all these people throwing all this money at people who are running for office, whether it's village town, uh, you know, legislature or Congress? I mean, you know, money, I feel like has really contributed to the brokenness of um, of the political system. And I think that we really, as citizens, need to take a real cold, hard look at that because um, I, this doesn't end anywhere 
good, I think. I, I, mean, I think yeah, that's the yeah. perfect summation of where we stand with this. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. Uh, Christy Sampson from East Hampton Star. We only have a couple minutes left, but I do want to talk about the Hamptons International Film Festival, one of my favorite uh, events of the year. Uh, and it's happening this weekend, right? Yep, it is uh, kicking off. And, you know, it has a special place in my heart. And we don't really need to discuss that. But, you know, one of the um, films this year. Oh, no, let's called... discuss it. Yes. Why yeah. that place <laughs> for That's what we're here for. It is, <laughs> the, it is where my husband and I had our first date. Oh, five years ago. Yeah. So it's a special, a special thing for us. And um, so one of the films in the in the festival this year is called Storm Lake. It is a documentary about a small town family-owned newspaper in Iowa and, you know, their struggles. They won a a Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing. And this documentary, it it will show on Wednesday next week. Um, And you can really, I think we'll all be able to relate to it, you know, at a really uh, meaningful level. And that, um, you know, for it was our lead story in, in our um in the East Hampton Star art section this week. And I think it will really um help readers understand, get a little insight to the inner workings of a small town paper. Um, you know, and, and it's our, worth pointing out that all of the papers and websites locally are are locally owned and they're they're independently owned. We don't have any chain uh organizations out here. I mean, you know, we are, are, and I I think that's one of the great things. And I think there's a reason we have such great journalism on, on the East end. And I think that's one reason. Our editor, David Rattray is actually doing a Q and a after the film. Mm. And uh, you know, he's the generational guy at the East Hampton star at this point. So like, you know, I really look forward to it. Um, probably not seeing it this Wednesday because, you know, we put the paper to bed on Wednesday. So <laughs> the timing <laughs> be, isn't great for the journalists themselves, but I know yeah. it'll have a theatrical release in New York and Los Angeles at some point. So, uh, and it'll be on PBS at some point. Definitely want to watch out for that. I have to say that the, the Hamptons film festival has presented some of the great moments of my 25 years uh, on the East end probably number one on the list being the frame by frame analysis of citizen frame by frame analysis of citizen Kane by Roger Ebert. Uh, and I, and I went to that and Faye Dunaway was sitting behind me, which for a film buff, uh, was pretty much heaven. So, uh, we are out of time for behind the headlines. Uh, so I want to thank our guests this week, Michael Mackey from right here on WLIWFM, Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local, and Chrissy Sampson from the East Hampton Star. Thank you, guys. We appreciate you taking the time. Always. You're welcome. Good to have you. Fun. Yeah. Great Good to have you. So, and thank you to Bill, Bill Sutton, my, my co-host. I'm Joe Shaw. We will be back uh, next week with Behind the Headlines. Thank you, and thank you for joining us. Thank you.